This morning we have three passages uh, to read from. Uh, The first is Genesis 1, verses 26 through 28, and it can be found on page 1 of the Pew Bible and page 2 in the following Jesus Bible. Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Our second passage is found in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 through 25, and it can be found on page 1007 in your pew Bible or 1321 in your following Jesus Bible. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. And our final passage today is Matthew chapter 5, verses 23 and 24, which can be found on page 810 in the Pew Bible or 1,030 in your following Jesus Bible. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the, offer, uh, at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be, be to God. God. Well, if you have little ones first grade and under who would like to go for our children's worship, they can be dismissed. Let's wait for Miss Brittany to catch up to you guys. Lest you have the run of the joint over there. Um, if you, if you don't, didn't get a separate uh, sheet for sermon notes, uh, let me invite you to grab one of those. We changed uh, this week where you have an English uh, version of the sermon and a Portuguese version of the sermon to make it easier for those of you who are uh, native Portuguese speakers. Um, for you to follow along. Um, We do have a a brief town hall meeting after worship today where we're going to be explaining some of these shifts in using Portuguese and some of the the new ministry ideas we have. And so we encourage you to to hang around for 10 minutes after the service for that. Well, let me again welcome the children who are joining us today, June and Maddie. We're glad to have you with us this morning. So let me ask you two, well, all you kids, a question. What is an image? If you were going to tell me what the word image means, what is an image? Joe, a picture. That's a great answer. Uh, uh, an image is a picture of something. It's not the thing itself. It's an image of it. And for the last five Sundays, Pastor Jason has been preaching about this idea that human beings were made in the image of God. But what does God look like? If we're going to make a a picture 
of him, God is a spirit. He doesn't have a body like men. Yet the Bible tells us that we were made to look like him, that we are created in his image. And that's what Mr. John read for us from Genesis chapter 1. Something happened. I think you guys got the 2018 NIV in the worship guide this week. So I'm reading from the ESV. If that confuses you at all, you can use the, the Bible in the uh, backs of the pews. So Genesis 1, 26 through 28 says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So we don't look like God physically, but because he doesn't have any physical nature to look like. But there's something about us that's like God. We were made, we were patterned after him. And in these three verses I've just read, we see two ways that we look like God, that we were made to be like God. And for those who were here a few weeks back, let's remember how he described the two ways that we are like God. First of all is dominion. God created you to bring his will to bear within your sphere of influence. If I was going to pose this as a question, I would say, how can you make your world more like heaven? So that's the first way you're made like God. You're made with that capacity to bring his will on earth. You are sort of a a vice regent, a prince, a ruler under him in the place where he has given you influence. But secondly, you are glorious. That's the second aspect of the image of God in us is glory. God created you to reflect the selfless virtue of Christ at all times. You were made to be a glory reflector. You're like a a mirror shining with the selfless virtue of Jesus. If I was going to pose that as a question, I would say, how can you live and love like Jesus where you are? It's what you were made for. Now, there's an activity that you can do that not only makes the world more like heaven, but also displays the selfless virtue of Christ. There's an activity that takes these two parts of being made in the image of God and brings them together in one action, which makes it a really important thing to do. There are actually a lot of activities you can do that embody both of these things, but the one that I want to focus on this morning is worship. What we're doing together right now. When God's people gather for worship, we make the world more like heaven. When we sing, the heavenly chorus echoes in our midst. When we gather for worship, we sing of the virtue of Jesus, we speak of the virtue of Jesus, we shine with his glory in that way. But there's another way that we shine the glory of Jesus that I really want to hammer home this morning, and it's this. Worshiping together is an act of selfless love for God and others. Worshiping together is an, is an act of selfless love for God and others. So when you gather together for worship, you're not just loving God, 
you're also loving the other people who are here. How? How is, how is worship an act of love for other people? I mean, of course it's an act of love for God, but how does it amount to selflessly loving other people in the way that Jesus went to the cross? Well, it's not uncommon to think about worship as this sort of experience that I have. It's something between me and God, right? We come to get spiritually recharged. We come to get blessed. We come to get groans. And so that's how we think of worship, this thing between me and God. And then there are other people here kind of filling this ancillary or parallel role, but it's really about me and God. It's something that God and I are doing alongside other people doing the same thing with God. That's wrong. That's not even like marginally wrong. It's totally wrong. It is a mischaracterization of what is happening right now in this moment. And I want to challenge that assumption that is rampant in the church of Jesus Christ. Gathered worship is not just about me and God, but it's actually something that we do out of love for other people. If we don't think of worship as something we do for others, it quickly becomes an optional activity. If it's just about me and God, and it has nothing, it has nothing to do with loving you, it very quickly becomes optional. Think about it. Well, if I feel like I need worship, I'll participate in it. And if I don't go to worship, well, I'll be the one who bears the consequences of that because I'm the one that needs it. After all, there's always next week. So I've missed this week. I can always go next week. But it's not just about you and God. It's not even just, uh, it's not even just for God. Worshiping together is an act of selfless love for God and others. Let's think about it. Whether you go to worship or not impacts the spiritual lives of those in your household. As a parent, your example matters spiritually to your children. And if you haven't figured this out yet, parents, I'm not an expert yet, but I've learned this. What you do matters more than what you say. Also, if you don't bring your children or your spouse to church, they're missing out on something very important for them. But this isn't the actual point that I'm getting at here. That's, this is not the main emphasis of the sermon. That's the, that's the easy thing. L- let me distill it actually more. We've got Isaac here, we've got Mike and Madeline, June and Maddie and Joe. We've got Isaac and David. We've got another Isaac here. We've got lots of Isaacs. Sophia, right? If these students weren't here, worship would be different, wouldn't it? It would change the dynamics of this space. Dick Fedek isn't here this morning. And worship hits differently because he's not here. Daisy Beck, Hella Franklin, they're not able to be here with us. And worship isn't the same without them. My wife and kids aren't here today, and it's definitely different for me. Worship isn't the same without them. Why? It's because they're images of God. Every one of these people who are here are images of God, and those who are not here are images 
of God, which means that worship is fundamentally changed in their absence because these reflectors of God's dominion and glory are here or not here. Now, in the case of all the people who are not here that I've just mentioned their names, the responsibility for their absence actually falls on us. Dick is with Jesus now, which means that an image of God has been removed from Faye's life, from her family's life, and from our church. It's our job to step into Faye's life and to fill that gap, to fill it with the glory of God where she's missing Dick. In the case of Daisy and Hella and our shut-in Dorothy, Dorothy Ross, Amy's mom, we miss them for their absence. But they live in relative isolation from all of us. So it's actually our job to be the image of God in their lives because they are separated from worship by physical hindrance. It's on us to empower them to see the glory and beauty of God. It's on us to help them worship God by meeting with them and singing with them and reading the scriptures with them and sharing the sacraments with them and enjoying deep fellowship with them. So that absence, that's, that's on us. But there are others who are not here, and often many of us are not here, and that impacts the worship of the people who are still present. At present, in, in, in the absence of image bearers, worship is fundamentally changed. Oh, did I not jump forward? Yeah, I don't know if you got that or not. I must have clicked wrong. That's where, yeah, that's what I want. When we recognize that our image-bearing presence in worship helps others to experience God, it shows that regular attendance in worship is not simply a moral imperative. It's an act of selfless love. It's loving others to be present. But what's the real difference whether we gather physically or virtually? What's the real difference if I only worship once or twice a month? Is it a volume thing? Are we not singing loud enough? Is it that there are too many chairs that are empty? Is this a tithing issue? Well, those are all things we could talk about. But I'm talking about something more important, even something metaphysical and spiritual, and it's this. God's glory shines differently and more fully when God's people gather physically. There's something about the physical presence of God's image bearers that makes his glory shine differently and more fully. So my emphasis is not on the number. It's on the physical presence. Aha, now you know what I'm talking about. So when we gathered for church... August 29th of last year, the day Hurricane Ida rolled in, there were only a few of us who were able to be here that morning. And it was a very simple service, a few songs, a short homily, prayer, and the Lord's Supper. But it was no less powerful. We experienced God through our being together. A month back, Joe Cropper and Isaac Crowder and Isaac Talley 
made an impromptu profession of faith at the end of worship. And we who were present had an experience of God that left us stunned. This is no lie. I went home that afternoon, and I could not do anything but go to my room, kneel by my bed, and pray. Because I felt like Moses by the burning bush after what I experienced that morning. The Holy Spirit showed up and shined this beacon of hope and joy and faith through those three boys that left me astonished and stunned. I worshipped differently. Because those three image bearers were here. God's glory shines through his image bearers when we worship. And when that happens, it makes the world more like heaven. In each other, we see the power and glory of God. And it simply doesn't happen the same way if we're not together physically. It's not just about seeing with your eyes and touching each other and hearing the union of our voices with our lips not mediated by a speaker or a computer, though that's part of it, there's something deeply spiritual, even metaphysical happening when we gather for worship. For the record, like back in the early 1900s when cassette tapes were first being made, like Martin Lloyd-Jones and these guys opposed the recording of their sermons because they didn't want any technology mediating that experience. They were, they were anti-cassette tapes. So if you think I'm grumpy about streaming, <laughs> those guys are against cassette tapes. There's something about being physically present with God's people and God's spirit because each of you is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Each of you is an image of God in the process of being restored. Each of you, when we gather with other image bearers who are indwelled by the same spirit, something spiritual is happening. And the joining together of ourselves... Is something greater than the sum of our parts. There's something mysterious and miraculous, and if I was going to define it, I'd put it this way. That the gathering of God's people is a reconstitution of his temple on earth. When we gather, God's temple, week after week, is rebuilt. God is present in this place in a special way to reveal himself. This is mystical and powerful, this thing that God does when we gather together. And we see this language all over the New Testament. Peter says that we are living stones being built up as a spiritual house to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Paul calls us individually and corporately the temple of, Je- uh, the, temple of the Spirit inasmuch as we are inhabited by him. But what is the result of this temple when it's reconstituted. What is the result we should expect when we get together? Well, let's look at Hebrews chapter 10. Again, you follow along in your worship guide or you can grab an ESV there. Hebrews 10, verses 24 and 25. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So what is the impact of God's people when we gather together as spirit-filled image bearers? Well, when we gather in person, God's presence among us stirs something in those present. God, in and through us, challenges us to live differently, and he encourages us on the difficult path toward eternity. That's what these two verses in Hebrews are trying to communicate. 
At the beginning of the pandemic, we stopped worshiping in person for a time. I don't regret that choice. I believe our session made a hard decision, and I believe it was, uh, our reasoning was biblically grounded and prudent. But it made life harder on all fronts, including our spiritual lives. And when we got back together, even though we were first outside under a tent with masks on and with assigned seating and all this weird stuff, it was still better to just be together. Because there's something here that just can't be replicated on a screen or a radio. And while I do, I do mean the sacraments, I don't mean just the sacraments. It's the impact of you and me and us here together with God. Here, the Spirit challenges us to live differently in a way that we aren't other, in a way that He doesn't otherwise. And that challenge is backed up by real people that you know. And real people that know you. And we're encouraged to be together walking on the hard road toward eternity. And this is the bigger point I'm trying to make. That worshiping together is not just an act of selfless love for God. It's it's a selfless act of love for each other. When you're not here, something is missing for the others who are here. Because you're an image of God. A reflection of God that's missing in our midst. Now, you might think, well, I'm not that important around here. I mean, not that many people know me. I'm new. Uh, I'm not really a leader. I mean, how important is it really? Let me respond by reading something that Chris Talley wrote uh, for our Sunday school class last week. It's in the front of your worship guide. You can flip over there with me. I thought this was really powerful. Um, Chris said, God gives his children a musical motif to hum or whistle as they journey through life. He instructs us to keep this motif in our hearts and minds, to develop it into a melody and sing it to ourselves and others. It brightens our path and lightens our load as we travel. That motif is the love of Christ. Corporate worship, among other reasons, is special because it aggregates the individual melodies of our lives into a divine counterpoint that magnifies the love of Christ. When we conclude the corporate worship and depart from the presence of other believers, we take with us the impression of that symphonic effect. Our own individual tune has somehow mysteriously been altered toward greater perfection. In an orchestra, each musician has his or her own part before them, but the maestro knows the entire score. When Christians worship together, we rehearse the high and noble music of heaven. Isn't that fantastic? I say we keep old Tally around. But seriously, this is what happens when we gather. And it elevates the role that every one of you plays in this moment. Whether you think you add something or not, think about it this way. An orchestra is still an orchestra with one or two players missing. But the song is irrevocably changed. It's not that it isn't still beautiful or wonderful or an orchestra. It's just not the same. Being present is important. It's essential, not just for you, but for the others who are here in your absence. But physical presence isn't the whole of the matter. When worship is grounded in Christian fellowship, God's glory shines even more powerfully. 
when, it, when worship is grounded in Christian fellowship, it's, God's glory shines even more powerfully. So just a few weeks ago, Beatrice Lorca joined our church. And she not only reaffirmed her faith in front of us, but she allowed me to share her story of her ongoing battle with cancer. When you hear Beatrice sing like we just did, Rock of ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. The song is transformed by her story. You're not just hearing her voice sing. You're hearing her story knit together with the gospel of Christ. You're seeing something of the dominion and glory of God when she sings because she's here. And she's participating in this moment. Last week you heard Stephen Leslie Roberts' story. You heard Carmen Broder's story. And when you did, suddenly everything took on a new shape. Why? Because it wasn't dry theology in theory. It was real. The word of God shining forth from the lives of the people that you know and that you love. And we have these children sitting here hearing the word of God read and preached. And what does that do to us? It enlivens our hope, not just for them, not just for the church, but for the future of the world. And it invites us to pray for them and to love them and to rear them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. This is what happens when we gather. We don't just worship with some random folks that we don't know. That's not the point. The point is to do it together as a family. Again, what did the author of Hebrews say in verse 24? Let us consider how to stir one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. He says, consider. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Think about these people, your worship is wrapped up in these people and their growth and their experience of Jesus. But that raises a question. Do you know these people? Or more importantly, maybe, do they know you? A commitment to a local church means not simply attendance and worship. It means revealing and sharing your story with fellow worshipers. It's not just showing up. It's bearing who you are, revealing and sharing your story with each other. We're going to have a membership class starting on August 21st, when we're going to ask those of you who've been worshiping with us for a while to make a commitment to this community. Others of you have already made this commitment to this community. But let me just make it clear, because I don't think I did a good job of this in past membership classes. What does it mean to be a member of of this church. It means a pursuit of intentional intimacy with these people. And that means risk. That means honesty. That means telling the truth, and we don't like to do that. That's why we get dressed up so fancy sometimes, so people don't see the truth about us, right? That's what I'm inviting you to, that kind of honest, intimate, risk-taking. That is true family. When we know each other's stories and then we hear people saying the creeds and singing these songs, it takes on a whole different tone. Let me give you two simple metrics for you to kind of judge 
how well you're doing this, this intimacy thing. So here's two simple metrics for our commitment. First of all, how often do I eat with the other people in this room? How often do I eat with the other people in this room? Now, I'm not saying wait for somebody else to invite you to eat and get really grumpy if they don't invite you to eat first. No. How often do you go on the offensive and ask the other... Not me. Everybody here, know, y'all know me, but how often do you go on the offensive and ask these other people, hey, can we go get a cup of coffee sometime? I'd just love to sit down and chat and have no agenda. But just to be honest, to, to bear yourself and hope for the same in return. Or maybe you get together for lunch after church one Sunday. You get the, the families together on the weekend to play Frisbee or have a picnic or something. This is actually why we do potlucks, which we're doing one today, so this all kind of ties together, is to show you we want you to eat together. We want you to know each other because that's what family does. This is the kind of environment we're trying to cultivate here at Faith. And that intimacy with each other just grows the richness of what we do when we worship together. Here's another uh, way to measure this. Answer this question. Who are the three people in this church that know they could call on me at any time? And who are those people for me? Who are the three people that could call on me at any time and that I know I could call? And I don't count, by the way, in this one either. Of course you can call me. I'm the pastor. But you need connections with each other. We've got to be able to rely on one another. This would be a healthy thing for us to be considering, not only for our benefit, but for the good of others. These people need you. And they need the image of God in you. Otherwise, God would not have put you here in this body, especially today. We need a fellowship so deep with one another so that if our fellowship was broken, worship just wouldn't be the same. Jesus implies this in the Sermon on the Mount. If you flip over to Matthew 5 with me, Jesus implies uh, that a broken relationship should radically alter worship. Matthew chapter 5, verses 23 and 24. Jesus says, So if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. What's Jesus saying? He's saying that unity in intimacy and love are absolutely essential for transformative Christian worship. Unity and love are essential. So if there's something between me and you, or if there's something between you and someone else in this room, if our relationships are not right, that impedes our worship. That holds us back. Why? Because we're here to stir each other up to love and good works. If we're to encourage each other down the hard road toward eternity, but we're making the road harder for each other, that just doesn't make sense. So we've got to be in a good place relationally. And that's what we declare every week at the Lord's table, isn't it? That in Christ, we've all found the same life. We've all been adopted into the same family, baptized with the same baptism, filled with the same spirit. So don't come to this table if someone in this body has something against you. Instead, make things right first. That's one of the primary things that Paul means when he says this. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning what? 
The body. He doesn't say the body and the blood. Without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. When he says to discern the body, I don't think he's talking about the bread. There are plenty of theologians that disagree with me. I don't think he's saying, when you eat that bread, think real hard. Make sure in your brain you're, you're, you're thinking, okay, this isn't just a snack. This isn't just bread. This is, a, this is the body of Christ broken for me. He's talking about us, the body, the community. What was Paul rebuking the Corinthians for? That some people were gathering and eating the Lord's Supper while there are others that were not permitted to the table. He's talking about this question of unity. Are we doing something physically at this table that is not true of us relationally and spiritually? And if not, we need to resolve those relationships lest we eat that meal deceptively, lest we do something symbolically with our bodies that's just not true. Examine yourself, judge yourself, discern the body. Let's live out what we say every week at the Lord's table and in our membership vows. Let us deeply invest in fellowship with each other. Worshiping together is a selfless act of love for God and others, especially when we have that deep foundation of fellowship. So are you committed to that? I'm inviting you to think of worship differently. It is for God. It is for you, but it's for these people as well. And your presence here impacts them and helps them to experience God in a different, fuller way. So join us. And listen, I I understand you can't be here sometimes. I'm not trying to harp on you guys. I didn't expect... I preached on abortion last week, and this one I felt like I was stepping on toes more than I was last week. You're here! So, you know, there's that. That's great. I'm, I'm excited you're here. I, of all people, understand your kid sometimes gets sick. Sometimes you're a doctor on call and you can't be here. But know that when you're not here, you're missed. And not just in some passing, immaterial way. Worship is changed because you're not here. It's not the same without you here. And we covet to have you back. We want you here every Sunday. So think of these people. Think of their pursuit of the Lord on Sunday morning. Think of their pursuit of worship and the part that you have to play in their worship and let that motivate you to come. Your role in this is actually just as important as mine, if not more important. Everybody knows a preacher is going to say preacher stuff, but coming from you with your story, it all hits differently. It, it, It means something different. It feels truer, fuller, more glorious. You are an image of God. Isn't it interesting that God said, don't make images, don't worship images, that when he built his temple, there was no idol or image that he erected to himself in it? Why doesn't he want these images in his temple? Because he filled the temple with his presence. We saw it in Sunday school last week. God physically or spiritually, whatever, he showed up presently, and he's doing the same thing today because you are his temple. I don't need an idol. I don't need a a stained glass picture of Jesus to stir up veneration in me. I look at you. You are the images of God. I see God's dominion and glory in each of you. I hear it, and it calls me to worship 
God. You show God to us in the way that only you could. So how do you need to recommit yourself to relationships with the people in this room? What actions do you need to take to build that unity, intimacy, and love? And how do you need to reconfigure how you participate with us in worship each week? We want you. Indeed, we need you here because you show God to us. So kids, I'm glad you're here. I'm very glad you're here. And truly, I'm glad that all of you are here this morning. Thank you for loving God and for loving us by coming and worshiping together this morning. Let's pray. God, we praise your name, and we thank you that you've given us to each other. We pray now that you will draw us closer to one another in unity, intimacy, and love so that we might experience you more fully. Thank you, Lord. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.